Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting April 22, 2016, we speak with the author of Black as a Country, Building Solidarity Across Borders, a major article in the new WPJ Spring issue, cover line, Black Lives Matter Everywhere. We'll also point out other top features in the new spring issue, but first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Reports News Service. Well, what is probably Barack Obama's final trip to the Middle East as president is also probably his most difficult journey to that region. In Saudi Arabia, he's meeting with King Salman and other officials who are angry over the nuclear deal with Iran. The Saudis, like Israel, by the way, have urged the U.S. to attack Iran rather than forge that nuclear deal. The agreement is also a nightmare for Riyadh in the following sense. It shows the Saudis think that Washington is now tilting away from Sunni-led Saudi Arabia to Shia-led Iran. And that's not all. It's no secret that 15 of the 19 hijackers who attacked New York and Washington on September 11, 2001, were from Saudi Arabia. A bill is now slowly making its way through Congress that could hold Riyadh accountable for any alleged role. Saudi Arabia vehemently denies any involvement in the 2001 attacks. President Obama has hinted he would veto any such bill anyway, and part of his Mideast trip is aimed at somehow mollifying the Saudis. Then there is this. The Saudis have lost clout in Washington in recent years, not just because of any American tilt toward Iran, but because of energy. Greater U.S. energy independence means that the United States simply doesn't need Saudi Arabia as much as it used to. Obama has also been on the phone with Russia's Vladimir Putin. The two presidents talked about the need to work together in Syria. Obama also repeated, as he has many times now, that Russia needs to honor its promises in Ukraine. There has been a significant uptick in fighting there in recent weeks. There's no indication, though, that the two leaders discussed Russian harassment of U.S. naval forces in international waters. Videos released by the Pentagon in recent days have shown Russian military jets flying within 30 feet of American warships. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House. You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this. We hereby present this charter. Number one, the establishment The organization of Afro-American unity shall include all people of African descent in the Western Hemisphere. In essence, what it is saying, instead of you and me running around here seeking allies in our struggle for freedom in the Irish neighborhood or the Jewish neighborhood or the Italian neighborhood, we we need to seek some allies among people who look something like we do. And once we get their allies... Back in America, after his pilgrimage to Mecca and key African nations in 1964, 
Breakaway black Muslim leader Malcolm X began to broaden his focus from domestic communities of color to the shared challenges and successful responses of black people elsewhere in the West and ultimately in Mother Africa as well. In 2013, the United Kingdom's Organization of Black Unity was founded on Malcolm's philosophy by Dr. Kayindi Andrews, Associate Professor of Sociology at Birmingham City University, Director of the Center for Critical Social Research, and co-chair of the Black Studies Association. Andrews writes about that philosophy, the oppression that produced it, and plans for action in World Policy Journal's new Spring 2016 issue, cover line Black Lives Matter Everywhere. His article is titled Black as a Country, Building Solidarity Across Borders. And we discussed it recently for this podcast. Dr. Andrews, welcome to World Policy on Air. Uh, Thank you, and thanks for having me on. You begin by observing that racism transcends the boundaries of the nation state, so the fight for freedom and equality must be global. But you admit that too often those in the struggle or trying to understand it see the situation only within their own country's borders. Explain this error that another sociologist dubbed methodological nationalism. Uh, well, it was Herminio Martins in '74 who, who dubbed this idea of methodological nationalism. And what he was talking about was the politics and sociology, theoretically, we tend to frame uh, everything in the nation state. So there's a British formation of racism and there's a British formation of class. And that's distinct because of this neat container of the nation state. Now that doesn't work because the West is a global system and therefore the systems of oppression are global systems of oppression. And so to think about about things within this methodologically nationalist framework, it, it limits the politics. And unfortunately, particularly if you look at racial movement for social justice. We've been stopped very much in the idea of the civil society and how can we get things from our respective nation states that we too often think about the black struggle in Britain, the black struggle in America, the black struggle in um, Brazil, as though these are different and not connected struggles. Well, say more about the different aspects of that same global racism you see undergirding Western capitalism wherever it's taken root. Well, if you think, what is the West? The West emerges... Uh, through a process, effectively, of, of white supremacy, right? So Western capitalism really emerges when Europeans are looking for places to, to settle, looking for places to develop uh, the genocide in the Americas, which is quickly followed by the enslavement of African people, uh, which is quickly followed by then setting up systems of Jim Crow in America or, or racial, racial, racism and colonialism in other parts of the world. So what you see is that the Western project is, is based on the idea of white supremacy and based on the idea of the black populations are at the bottom of the heat and can be exploited um, at any cost. And that still happens today. It just happens in different ways, in different places. Some say that racism in Great Britain has to differ from the U.S. strain because your early economic migrants from the Caribbean never had the history of American slavery. Talk about similarities you see in migration, stereotyping, and limited opportunity in both countries. Well, if you look at it, it's one of the things I, I like to talk about a lot because uh, particularly in Britain, uh, some people will argue, well, look, the American situation is so different. Why do you keep going on about Malcolm X? I mean, I love Malcolm. I talk about Malcolm all the time. How relevant is this to us? And the argument I always use is that actually, if you look at the racial formation in the United Kingdom and the United States, in some ways it's identical and it's very, very, very similar. So although we take this, what methodological nationalism does is it makes us think that the Caribbean, places like Jamaica, where my family is from, are actually different, different nations to Britain, 
But it was only in 1950s, 1960s that these countries started to get their independence from the United Kingdom. When my father moved to Britain, he had a British, he was a subject of the British crown. The idea that Jamaica is not part of Britain is nonsensical. So what happens in, in, in the UK is that you have plantation slavery in the Caribbean. Uh, you then have a system of effectively Jim Crow, which happens um, after the ab abolition of slavery in the Caribbean. And then you have economic migrants who come from the Caribbean to, to Britain, expecting this to be the savior, the people who abolish slavery, et cetera, et cetera. And what they find is that actually they get put into urban ghettos. Uh, they're stereotyped, they're harassed by the police, they're at the bottom of the education system. And that is really the exact same thing that happens in the Great Migration to African-Americans who move from the South up into northern cities. So the racial formation in the two countries is actually very similar. What about the situation for more recent black immigrants direct from Africa, previously seen as, uh, quote, model minorities? Well, it's interesting. The model minority thesis is based on two things have really changed. I mean, what the pattern of that in Britain. So in Britain, we had uh, poor African Caribbeans coming over uh, who took, who took lower paid jobs, even if they were middle class jobs, had to do things like cleaning jobs and work on the trains and things. And the model minority was based on a particular kind of migration of people, particularly from Nigeria and Ghana, who came into the country with more money, who came into the country with more resources, and did quite well in comparison to their Caribbean counterparts. So there was a big thing, oh, the Africans are doing better than the Caribbean, et cetera, et cetera. When I was growing up, there was quite a lot of tension there. But that's changed for a couple of reasons. One, the migration has changed, actually. Now, uh, because of things like the refugee crisis, you have a lot more African migrants who come into the country and they have come in even if they were middle class or elites in their home countries because of the refugees, because of the refugee status, they're coming in with nothing. So they're also uh, coming into the bottom of society rather than coming into the middle. And the other thing that's changed is that whenever you have settlement, uh, there may have been 20 years ago, say, people who had generational money and wealth and they came into Britain from Africa which set them apart from the Caribbean. However, they've also found they have to live in the same places, get harassed by the same police, and have the same experiences as, as, as black Caribbeans. So there's now like a black British identity emerging where it's much more, it's much more difficult to say, oh, that's black Caribbean, that's black African. They're just the experience of black Britishness. In the UK, you argue this methodological nationalism has helped the government avoid getting to the root causes of racial inequalities. In what way? So what it does is, I mean, and this is a, a quote from Malcolm I always use when he's critiquing the civil rights movement. So he's saying, the pro what's the problem of civil rights? Civil rights, it frames the problem of racism in the jurisdiction of Uncle Sam. If you're asking America to solve, the to solve your problems, then you don't understand the nature of your problems. And it's the same in the UK. Britain is what has been, always been one of the worst purveyors of racism and one of the biggest beneficiaries of global racism. That is still the case today. There is no solution to the race problem which is going to be handed out by the British government. So if we continue to appeal to the government, frame it in this national way, what that does is it stops us from seeing this is a global system, a global problem, and our compadres in this struggle aren't necessarily uh, people who live, live next door to us. It's the African diaspora who may live in America, may live in Latin America, on the African continent. That's the organization collection which can bring us into a radical change, not just the reformist change that we're stuck in at the minute. You also see the desire of many activists for a multi-ethnic anti-racist coalition actually undermining a stronger black rights movement. 
Talk about the difference between challenges facing black Britons and other non-whites, especially involving police stops, arrests, and jailing. Yeah, so in the UK, this is particularly, and this isn't, this isn't really an argument against saying you should have uh, multi, multi-racial, multi-ethnic coalitions. What it's saying is that we need to do that, but we also need to understand there are different experiences different, and different problems. So if you look at, there is no, not being white, in Britain does not subject you to the same kinds of racism. So, for example, African, African-Caribbean, the black population, uh, experience the police brutality much more, experience the arrest much more, experience uh, certain forms of discrimination in education particularly. So schools, well, I wrote a book around um, resistance to racism in education. Uh, actually, some ethnic minority groups do better than, 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 than white students. So it's, it's far too simplistic to say that being not white puts you in the same boat. It's not really the case. Um, and what we need to understand is that, yes, we have to have these coalitions, but we're part of a, a bigger picture, a global picture of the African diaspora, and that's the primary unity we need in order to make significant changes. I, w- I was interested. It got so bad in the case of some kinds of police actions that there were official efforts not to report ethnicity. Uh, yes, so we got, I mean, the police here are terrible in terms of uh, what they call stop, um, not stop and search. Uh, there's a kind of stop where they stop you and they don't search you, but they ask you where you're stopping a camp. Uh, that, that was actually more disproportionate towards African-Caribbean communities. At one point, it was you eight times more likely, nine times more likely to be stopped under that. Under certain stops, Section 60 stops, uh, a few years ago, you were 26 times more likely. Uh, Section 60 stop is when they have a suspicion of a crime being committed. Uh, you were 26 times more likely if you were a black African or African-Caribbean to be, to be stopped by the police. Really significant issues. And in response to this, the police, actually my police force, half the police force in the UK, um, said they were going to stop collecting any data on ethnicity uh, for stopping accounts uh, because they no longer have to. And certainly West Midlands Police, which is one of the worst police forces in that, has just done that. They just do not, no longer collect data on the ethnicity of stopping accounts. So nobody knows now how disproportionate these stops are. But aside from the actual annoyance, uh, that means that each of these stops ends up uh, giving somebody a police record? Uh, so stopping accounts aren't as, aren't as um, significant as that. You don't get a police record. It is more about the harassment of uh-huh. the police. It's more about being stopped and, being, and, and having your day account is full. So it's not, they're not as significant as stop and search or, or being arrested. But it, it just, it's, a lot, it's part of that larger harassment of the police. If you are a black man, particularly a young man, in Britain, the police are allowed to stop you, account for your whereabouts, or pull you over in your car pretty much whenever they like, and there is less protection of that now than there used to be. On the far more serious issue of deaths at the hands of police, which sparked Black Lives Matter in the U.S., there are similar disparities in the U.K., uh, yeah, I always say that if you look, if you want to understand British racism, look at America. America just effectively is a more extreme version, right? So you uh, lock up more people, so therefore there's more uh, black people in prisons, and the police carry guns and kill a lot more people, so a lot more <laughs> black people get killed by the police. Whereas in the UK, the police kill very, very few people. The police, uh, most police aren't armed, so the numbers of police um, deaths at the hands of the police are, are very small. But if you actually look at the disproportionality of the uh, black population is around 9, 9.9 to 10% of all the suspicious deaths in police custody, uh, not, sorry, not police custody, uh, at the hands of police, which could be in police custody or after police contact. And we only represent 3% of the population. 
So you can see the same kind of prints. From describing the problems, let's move to the solutions you're working on, based on seeing blackness as the foundation for a global diaspora. Say more about that and, and those who have urged it before. Well, this is, a, this is a politics that goes back to Malcolm. It goes before Malcolm. So Marcus Garvey probably created the most successful black nationalist, probably not the word I would use, black radical organization, the Universal Negro Improvement Association, which, I mean, this is before that, this is in the... By 1920, they had 5 million members across 50 countries across the entire world. This is before you have a phone really used, let alone internet, Twitter, etc., etc. And he managed to actually create this massive, biggest, largest black radical organization that we've ever seen. Uh, there's also, further back than that, the Ethiopianism movement, where the diaspora came together to say that Italy shouldn't be invading um, Ethiopia, and people had to actually be stopped from traveling from America and South Africa, uh, they wanted to go and fight on the behalf of the uh, Ethiopian side. And you've had, really, I mean, this, this history goes back into slave rebellions and even before that. And in, in fairness, the first time the word, the phrase Africa for Africans was used, it wasn't actually Europeans. This, this was a defense of Africa in the seventh century by Dahir al-Kahini in Tunisia, who was defending against Arab invasion into North Africa. So there is a long history and trajectory of this that says, the African diaspora is, is, is a nation. The nation needs to organize, collectivize, and, and, and seek for itself to move forward. In that regard, describe the, uh, the current agenda and priorities of your organization of black unity. What we're doing in the minute is to say that there's, there's two real key areas. One is uh, political education. Uh, so every month we have a some event where we talk about something like Malcolm X or we talk about Pan-Africanism or we talk about some political thing. Political education is really important in terms of what we're doing. Uh, we're also involved at the minute in trying to set up, reopen the Marcus Garvey Nursery, which is the oldest black nursery in the country, which has fallen into disrepair. And that doesn't sound like the most, the most radical thing to do. I mean, it sounds kind of small in comparison to the, the global politics which I'm talking about. Say more about your group's Year X program focused on the legacy of Malcolm X. Uh, yes, so one of the problems we had when we started probably was, I guess we were trying to be a little bit too inclusive, I think, because it's a mass, we're trying to get mass membership, trying to get all of the community on board, and everybody doesn't like radical politics. Everybody can shy away from some of the more radical edge of it. So we kind of tempered some of the messages and some of the things we were saying. Um, and that led to some, some problems of messages and what we were trying to do. So uh, we decided that last year, it was 50 years since the assassination of Malcolm X and 90 years since his birth. So we thought this would be perfect. Year X, we ran 12 events. Uh, importantly, to recognize Malcolm and Malcolm's contribution, but also importantly to say this is the ideological position of the organization of black unity. There is a particular kind of politics we are putting forward which is based on Malcolm's vision. And what does that mean briefly? So... One, racism is a permanent feature of Western society. It is not going anywhere. As Malcolm said, uh, Western capitalism uh, can never produce freedom for black people in the same way that a chicken can never lay a duck egg. It's just not going to happen. So therefore, we need to understand that, understand we need to be building in protections for ourselves while we are here, but also building towards creating the, the black international, which can, call, which can lead to an alternative society being developed. So we thought the ERX is important, so we had 12 events where we looked at different aspects of Malcolm's uh, legacy. We had a Malcolm X Youth Conference. Uh, we had a social theory of Malcolm X with the last conference we had. Uh, we had smaller events. 
and really try to engage locally and nationally uh, with the politics of Malcolm X. And you're partnering with the London-based International African People's Parliament. What's the, what's the goal there? Uh, yes, yeah, so one of the key principles of both Malcolm's OAAU and also the Organization of Black Unity is that we will work with any organization that is serious about the black radical agenda. And INAP, the International Interim National African People's Parliament, I think it started about a year after OBU, and they were trying to do sort of similar things in London, uh, really trying to bring together the community, organize the community, build a base for the community where we can... Uh, they, they use the term nation-building a lot. Uh, so we saw that and we're like, well, definitely, that we have the same goals, so we need to get together, organize together, and unify together. And we do... We had events the other day together in Birmingham, and we have events also in London together. So that's the idea, collectivity, moving forward. And if any other organizations want to be part of that, we are always open to as many organizations coming on board. Let me back up. Uh, looking ahead, you say that with racism, a central feature of Western capitalism, change can only come from black populations gaining political and economic power, which we generally see exercised within domestic boundaries. But you also urge creating global networks to create a black nation with freedom and equality across the world. Do these two dynamics conflict with one another or at least to some degree distract from one another? Um, they certainly can do, if I'm being 100% honest. Uh, what you often find and what we found, and actually why the reason why we did uh, Year X was that there is kind of this strand of black capitalism where you can say, okay, let's, we're saying let's start a nursery. We're saying let's start a black school. We're saying let's, let's start food cooperatives so that we can um, start to control the black pound and make it circulate around the community. Uh, so we can keep retain more of the money that we that we spend. Uh, that also fits quite well into a pretty black capitalist agenda that says let's build businesses, let's have black billionaires, let's that's the solution. Let's make our situation here uh, wonderful. But it certainly can do, and it certainly has done in the past. What we are trying to do is say that it doesn't have to. What we're trying to do, and this is why we have the political education at the forefront of what we're doing, is saying that if we are going to build, we definitely need to build these things so we can have better lives here, but the, the aim for the organization, the aim for the politics can't be just to have better lives in the United Kingdom. We need to understand that the money that we generate, that we generate here, uh, we are now part of Western capitalism. We are now part of the problem. The money that we are generating, the money that I am paid and, uh, for my job, that is from the exploitation of African people worldwide. So we can never be happy and satisfied if African people worldwide aren't liberated. And that's why blackness is really important. Because we have to understand this not, and this is again comes back to methodological nationalism. This isn't about trying to make black people in Britain better off. It's about trying to make black people worldwide better off. And when you take that perspective, you have to look at the poorest people. And the poorest people aren't here; they're in Africa. Right? The poorest people are the three million children under the age of five that die every year in Eastern and Sub-Saharan Africa. That's who we have to be focusing our attention on. And if we can get more resources and more power here, we have to be using that to change that situation. On that global scale, what would replace Western capitalism, especially as we've seen the even greater problems with old Soviet-style economies, the new Russian version, and the suddenly shaky Chinese model? Uh, this is where the idea of Pan-Africanism is very powerful and very strong. I mean, what, why does Marxism or communism fail in, in, in different places? You effectively can't have communism in one country. You can't have communism in two countries. It doesn't work. It gets isolated. It gets cut off. Uh, you, the, the economy will, won't work. 
There is a potential, though, for the African continent to provide a different kind of space. The African continent has the resources and the materials necessary uh, that you don't necessarily need. Lots of outside engagement, lots of, for example, if you have all the resources necessary to build your society, sanctions doesn't, doesn't bother you, right? Being cut off from outside doesn't bother you. So the idea which has started, uh, I suppose, the Pan-African Con Conference in 1900 and carried on through Pan-African movements uh, in the West and on the African continent, the idea was if you could organize the African states into a Pan-African nation, this being the nation of black people, this being the nation uh, that can provide a different kind of society. African socialism is what Julius Nyerere calls it. Africa does provide you the opportunity to build an alternative relatively, I wouldn't say completely, but relatively um, cut-off area where you can develop something different, very, very different, which transforms Western capitalism. Because Western capitalism, make no mistake, relies on the exploitation of African, uh, not African labor now, but on African resources. And so to do that, literally, if an African Africa would end Western capitalism and then would be able to decide, see if we could build a different alternative economic model. How would achieving your economic, social, and justice goals actually impact the lives of black Britons? In what nation would they actually live, vote, pay taxes, get benefits? Uh, see, this is, this, is the reason, this is the reason why uh, people don't necessarily like the radical argument. The, the logical endpoint of the argument that I'm putting down here is that it's Garveyism. It really is a Garveyist argument. If we're saying that Britain is fundamentally racist, can't be anything other than racist, and the only way to, to end uh, the oppression of black people worldwide is to create a pan-African alternative. Well, that basically means that we need to leave. I mean, that basically, ultimately, fundamentally, not right now, not today, but it means at some point down the line, the only solution is for us to go away from these Western places where we don't, uh, where, we don't where we reside, is to go and take part in building this African nation. And I think that's one of the reasons why even I'm getting a bit skeptical level to which uh, black people in the West <laughs> will be engaged in this project because we're part of it now. We've become house Negroes in Malcolm X's uh, terminology, where we're kind of embedded in. Even in the Caribbean, we call, my dad called Jamaica home. Well, Jamaica's not home. There's, there's no native black people in Jamaica. Uh, we should be thinking much more globally, much more uh, African, in an African sense. I think in the long term for us, is actually the physical return uh, to the African continent. Dr. Andrews, thank you. All right, thank you. Thanks for having me on. Dr. Kayindi Andrews is Associate Professor of Sociology at Birmingham City University, Director of the Center for Critical Social Research, Co-Chair of the Black Studies Association, and Founder of the UK's Organization of Black Unity. For the new Spring 2016 issue of World Policy Journal, cover line Black Lives Matter Everywhere, he wrote the article, Black is a Country, Building Solidarity Across Borders. Also featured in the WPJ Spring issue, you'll find articles about black power in the French news, race and revolution in Cuba, plus the unintended consequences of India's war on sex selection. World Policy on Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast Producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.